Welcome to this episode of Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose with Ellen Barton, where you'll hear thought-provoking discussion, inspirational stories, and get action tips for creating the life of your dreams. Hello, and welcome to Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose, a weekly podcast in which we talk about the secrets behind living the life you've always dreamed of. I'm Ellen Barton, and today my guest is a fellow entrepreneur who's mastered some big ideas around the art of selling, Ken Fanger. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ellen. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, For a number of years, Ken, you've been running a company in Ohio. Your company is called On Technology Partners, and I thought we could just start out by you briefly telling us, you know, what your company is about and what you do there um, at its helm. Yep. So... I have been, we, I've owned On Technology Partners for 22 years, and over that time, we have adapted, and as of recently, we've become a technology risk company, and what that means is we help people to figure out what they should be doing to keep their businesses running. We know there's out there, there is security, there's all the cyber attacks, there's data loss, and a lot of people feel very lost, and so one of the things that we do is we'll sit down with you, we'll help you figure out what really is important to your company, and then help figure out how to protect it. And so, and I've been doing this now, we've been doing this new view for about two years, but I realized I've been doing it for a lot longer than that. Yeah, one of the things I like about your approach to all of that is, um, I think I've seen that, I guess your competitors or companies that are similar to yours, frequently are using these um, really scare tactics. And certainly cyber security is a, is a threat, you know, is a reality, and it is scary. But your approach is not to almost like bully people into purchasing your services because of you're, you're trying to like scare them into it, right? Yes. And one of the things, and we can talk about my whole concept of emotional selling in a little bit, but one of the things that I do as a person is... I hated that feeling of fear that everybody was trying to get me to. I'd go to these conventions, I would talk about cybersecurity, and all they'd do is sit there and they'd say, you know, $10 billion of cyber theft and just these absurd things that make you feel like you can't do anything to be safe. And I suddenly realized people are just tired of being scared to be scared. There are definite risks out there and there are definite things you have to do. But you can do it in a way that focuses on on the good things that can happen as opposed to the bad things. And so we've tried to change kind of the conversation that people do to help them see they can protect themselves, but they don't have to spend their whole life terrified of what could happen. Yeah, I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. And I do want to just kind of dive into this discussion about emotional selling because um, that's the bulk of what I was hoping we could talk about today. And then I have some some extra questions for you too later. But um, sales are so important to a company's growth. And many of uh, us entrepreneurs, myself included, and I'm sure many of the listeners, many of us are what I would call reluctant salespeople. And I remember I was working a while ago in my business with a business coach and she said something about the fact that I was the best salesperson for my company and the face of the company. And it was, Oh, I just resisted that. I was like, no, I, anybody but me, but she was right. And it took me a while. It took me a couple of years to really accept that and, and embrace it. But, um, it was, uh, it, it, 
the only way I could enjoy the selling process was to change my perspective about what that meant. And I'm just curious what you think about all of that. Well, and, and it's, it's very funny because I've been the lead salesperson for my company for 22 years. And for 21 of those, I specifically told people I was not a salesperson. I don't do sales. I hated every minute of it. In fact, let me tell you a story. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will appreciate this. I would be required to make a phone call for a sale. It could take me up to six hours to make one phone call. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would sit there and I'd come up with this reason. I'd be like, oh, I can go get some lunch and I'll call after lunch. And I would do everything in my power to not call them. And it took me a long time to realize I didn't want to call them because I hated that new car salesman thing where I feel I have to be aggressive at the person. I have to make them feel bad. I have to attack them. I didn't want to be that person. And like you, I had to realize I had to be different. And it's funny, over the last year, two things happened. One, I joined 10,000 small businesses and I found people like you that also hated doing sales. They're in their small business. They were out there. They knew they had to do it, but it was that after feeling that you waited until you were all done with everything else you could do, and then you forced yourself to go and do sales. And so that's when I first realized I had to stop forcing myself. I had to stop being the have to do it, and I had to start to figure out why is it important to me, and why can I do it in a way that helps them as opposed to feel like I'm a burden. Right. And then the second thing that happened was a good friend of mine, Rhonda Toth, who you had on one of your Friday uh, webcasts, asked me to come and talk to her. She used to be in the legacy group. She was a partner there, but she wanted to go back into technical sales. And she'd been out of it for a while, so she wanted to sit down with somebody who does technical sales. And she pulled up this giant 25-slide presentation. And she started going through it with me. And I just... It had all those things. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the slides where there's tons of information on one slide and they're trying to overwhelm you with how great they are. And I sat there and as we we're going through it, I just said, stop, wait a minute. What do you want them to feel when you're done? And her first response to me was, well, I want to f- them to feel that we are the right choice. And I said, that's not a feeling. I said, a feeling is an emotional. And she said, well, I want them to feel excited. And so we started to look at all of her slides from that position. And we said, you know, if it doesn't make you excited when you look at it, throw it out. And we took her from 25 slides down to four slides. And as we were talking to her, I realized she is what's going to make them have an emotional feeling. She is one of those women. And you had the advantage of having her on your show and seeing that. She's so exciting. She is so energetic. She is just one of those people. She walks into a room and everybody loves her and everybody wants to be around her. And I started to think about that. And I started to think about this idea of what feelings do you want to have a person walk out of the room with? Because at the end of it, people won't remember the facts you throw at them. They'll have one fact, maybe two that they'll keep. Otherwise they lose it, but they will remember how they feel. And so I started to look at my own self at that point and I started to realize I made people feel comfortable, but I didn't make that my selling process until then. I didn't sit there and actively make sure that the materials I gave talked about how they would be safe, how their systems would work properly, how I would tell them how that would help, and how I'd question them in ways that focused on that. And I started to change my selling after that. This was about six months ago. And since then, I've noticed that people have been much more responsive, and even people that don't buy follow back up with me later and remember how I made them feel safe. 
And so I've started to look at what is emotional sailing and how can we make that work? And actually, you and I have kind of talked about that a few times as well, relative to things like cold calling. Yeah. So is it, so you said Rhonda is naturally this energetic, magnetic person and that you maybe are a little bit more introverted and you help people feel safe or comfortable. Do you think it's important to um, gravitate towards that natural tendency that we all have, or would it be better to decide what your emotion is going to be and then work towards creating that? Well, and that's a great question because one of the problems that I run into is I would have people give me advice and they would tell me that I have to do this. I'll give you an example. I was told for years that I had to do large group selling. I had to go to uh, chamber events. I had to go to cozy events. There would be hundreds of people. And I found myself suddenly getting shrunk down. I, I wouldn't talk to anyone. I would hide in a corner. And I found out very, well, unfortunately, it took years. I was going to say very quickly, but unless you consider 20 years quick, I'm not going to say quickly. <laughs> um, I realized that People are telling you how they have to do it. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to be true to yourself. You're never going to get somebody to feel a certain way if you don't feel it yourself. So if you're not an energetic person, deciding that you're going to be a wow salesperson is probably not going to work. And so you do want to, when you're doing any type of selling, and like I said, emotional selling is what I'm talking about, you got to start with you, but you got to remember it's for them. So there are people that my way of selling is just not going to work for. I'm not going to keep trying, but I can't change drastically. And one of the things that I've kind of done is I started to look at the different types of selling. There's, you know, there's a lot of fear selling. We talked about that in my industry, and that is how a lot of the salespeople sell. I hate that feeling. So I can't get myself to get to that level. If I start talking about bad things, I'm really quickly going to move to, well, we can help protect that. We can keep you from that. Let's talk about how you're going to feel better about it than keeping you in that state of fear. And so if you aren't true to yourself to start with, you'll go back to that eight hours to make a single fold call. You're not going to do it. So you got to start with yourself. You do want to always focus on the sale and the person but you got to do it from where you can be, not from where somebody else can be. And it doesn't work, I've learned. Do you, when you're making that cold call, do you have a uh, line that you use when you get the other person on the phone? And it's hard to get them on the phone sometimes. Well, I don't do cold calls. That That's one of the first things that I do not do. Um, and one of the things that I try is I always have to have a reason for calling. That way it's not a cold call. You can call somebody for the first time, but if you call them just to sell your product or your service, you're probably already going to start from a hard place. If I'm going to call somebody, it's usually to find out if there's something either that I can ask them to do as a favor for me to help, because people are more willing to help than to buy. The other thing is I want to find out something about them, not asking for the sale. One of my big tenets is that I never sell to you. I always sell through you. I would rather tell you my services, tell you what I can do, and see if you know anybody. You'll decide if you want to buy from me. If you don't, that's okay. I'm not going to push you because, again, it's not comfortable to be pushed. So I do when I do a call, I always have a basis for the call that is not just to sell and a reason why they would value that call because 
at the end, if it isn't valuable to them, it's not valuable to me. And selling a product isn't valuable most of the time by itself. Right. No, that's good. And I like that sell through you, not to you, because that takes all the pressure off. Yes, on both sides, because people don't realize when you're receiving, and I get lots of sales calls. When I'm receiving that sales call, my first thought is, I don't really want to talk to you. I'm busy. This is a pain in my ass. So this pressure on both sides, I've tried not to be too much of an ass to salespeople that are calling because I understand their position, but it's still taking out of your day. It's still taking away from the things that I have to do and the time that I have to spend. Yeah, that was one of my questions for you. Do you ever give advice to salespeople that cold call you? Um, it's funny. I've given advice to um, help desk technicians that I've talked to. Uh -huh. I haven't given – because it hasn't been until recently that I've accepted that I'm a salesperson, I was in denial for so long that I didn't think I had a right to tell other people. And now that I've changed my attitude and I've – become more of an embracing person and realizing that sales is not the evil industry that I think sometimes we make it out to be. I've been trying to help salespeople. So recently, not on the phone, but in person, when I talk to people, I try to tell them some of the things that I've done to be better. And even this web, this uh, podcast is an example of that, because I think it's important to first embrace yourself and be comfortable. So I think the next salesperson I talk to, I may, uh, annoy them and give them some advice. We'll see. You should, I mean, tell them to get off of the script thing because I really hate it when people call me and they're, they're reading from a script and they're not interested really in engaging in a conversation. They don't listen to, it, it's just, it's so annoying you, because you're right. You take time out of your day. If you bother to listen to at least even part of the spiel, you, you know, like, I at least would expect to engage with a human on some level and not a script, you know? I, I agree with you 100%. I, I find it more uh, genuine if the person can actually talk and actually has a passion for the product. But I think, unfortunately, the company they work for in a lot of cases requires them to follow a script. And I know, but it's so misguided. And I understand why they do it, but it's I, it makes me think, like, does anybody buy from this person that's reading from a script? Does this work? Well, and, and I think it does at some level or they wouldn't keep doing it. But at the same time, and this is one of the things that I've been kind of researching and I'm actually working on a book to help people with this. When you do those types of sales, depending on how you do it, people don't feel good. So yes, you might get that sale, but it becomes harder to get the next one. And it depends on if your model is to get continual sales or just get one because, and, and I've had salespeople that'll do this. They'll start on the script, but we'll go off the script and then we'll start to have a genuine conversation. And those people I want to, you know, I, I bought things and I admit it. I bought things because I ended up liking the person that was talking to me. Uh, I'll give you an example. I got a call to do uh, donations to the firefighters fund. Uh -huh. And in general rule, I do not professional solicitors, I don't buy from because I know they can take up to 50% of the solicitation. But I started talking to this woman and she was so engaging that I wanted to give her 50% of the donation. So I ended up giving, I think it was like $200 to the uh, firefighters fund. And I think that's a good cause, but because of how she was and how she, she started on the script, but she started talking about things in her life. I liked her. And so giving money became much easier. And mm -hmm. I think, 
miss that. If you can do the script genuinely, great. If you can't, then you're back in that disconnect between what you really are and what you're trying to do. Yeah, and it's true that even in times of technology and all of that, people still do business with people they like. It's still, it's even if you're dealing in a business-to-business environment, it's still people. Uh, I don't care what anybody says, <laughs> it's like on some level. Um, but a, another question I had for you was uh, when you are talking with someone and explaining your services, what is your thought on um, talking about benefits versus features or like, do you, how, how do you craft the conversation? Well, the, the first thing to remember is a benefit is only a benefit if it matters to them. So I don't talk about products. I don't talk about features. Um, in fact, I call that value selling. And the truth is for value selling to truly work, you have to, before you start to talk to them, know what they value. And a lot of people that I know will assume my value is your value. And that's not how it works. And so if you're going to sell on value propositions, you've got to take a lot of time to make sure you know what they value. Because, and I'll give you an example. We sell phone systems. And the company that we use, one of the companies we use, has a long list of all these features. And they're like, give them this feature sheet. And I've given out this feature sheet to people because I'm like, I'm going to sell all these products. It'll be great. We'll be excited. And everybody looks at me and says, I don't know what this is. I don't want this. I don't care about three-way calling. I don't care about this. And, I'm, and I realized I stopped giving out that sheet and I started saying, so when you use your phones, what do you do? And I'll end up picking only two things because I find people won't remember more than one or two things. And I'll be like, oh, you know, by being able to do this, you can have your salespeople use a company phone number. And then I'd talk to them about the fact that, do you know if you let them use their personal cell phones, if those salespeople leaves, they take your customers with them because customers are going to call the last phone number they knew. Wouldn't you rather own that phone number than give it away? And then I would do something like that, that suddenly connects it to their value because mm-hmm. it's all, again, the customer's value is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what features you have. It matters what features they need. And you got to talk to them to find that out. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So a good sales conversation could just be a lot of questions. It should. In fact, you should most of the time just do questions. And one of the things that I've learned that really helps, and I will do like a sales presentation, and I'll make sure I write down everything the customer says. And then I will go back to my office and I'll sit down, I'll type it up and I'll send it back to them with a thing. Can you tell me if this is accurate or is there anything that I missed? Uh And it's amazing how it really engages them because most people go through and say, yeah, this is what I wanted. Some will go through and say, oh yeah, but you forgot this and this and this. And it lets me reconnect with them. Uh And they realize how important it was what they were saying mattered to me because that's the only thing that matters is what they say. So, um, is that something that you can do? Like sometimes in my business, for example, I'll have um, quotes out for quite some time and I don't hear from people. Is that a way to touch, to, to reach out and be like, hey, you know, I was just reviewing your file and I wanted to see if anything's changed. This is what I heard you say when we last talked or is it, because a lot of times I find myself sending those emails which say, Hey, just checking in. Have you decided to sign my proposal yet? (laughs) And I think that's a little bit annoying. 
And it, it, it's funny you say that because I do a similar thing, except for I take part of that off. So I'll send out a follow-up email, but I won't ask them if they've made a decision yet. I'll send the email and say, hi, just thinking about you, wanted to see how things were going. And uh -huh. it'll let me have a touch, but it won't make them feel like they have an obligation. But I do have, and this is one of the things that I find personally helps. When I finish with a meeting or something, I will have the next touch point that I'm going to make with them already defined. So I would say, you know, you might want to send out an email that says, hi, just touching base. And I'm going to follow up with you in three weeks to see how things are going. And then that way you set an expectation in their mind that you're going to reach out to them, but you haven't obligated them to take an action yet. And then on the second or third one, give them a call or send them an email and say, I just wanted to see if you had any questions that you needed answered or something to then engage them and then move them again, slowly towards your conversation piece. And trust me, I understand it's very frustrating when you have things out and it takes four, five, six, ten. I know we just had one and it took almost 22 weeks for the person to decide to move forward. And I just kept saying hi every three weeks, didn't tell them they had to buy, but I kept asking them. And again, I know this is something that I have to practice more, which is you do have to ask for the business at some point. Right. But, but and that you, you gave a great example because you feel guilty about doing that. It'll be harder to do. So if you can move it to a place where you don't feel guilty because you're not imposing on them, you'll do it more often. And that's what I learned is that's what's got to be individual to you. Some people have no problem doing the direct ask. They're very aggressive in my eyes and aggressive isn't bad, but I'm not that person. I can't do the direct ask constantly. I can't keep nudging at people until they move. I have to do it more gently. Now, I want to ask you about mindset because I have found that if as the salesperson, you, um, I shouldn't say you, I should say I, um, if, if I don't feel really comfortable with the money um, thing, you know, if I, if I feel like, oh, this is kind of expensive or, you know, I have to really feel truly in my heart that this is good value. I'm, you know, it's, it's fair. It's a fair price. It's good for everybody. Um, I'm, if I feel that, um, oh, I'm asking for so much, it's, it's weird. You know, I've, I even, I have had a business coach be like, why are you being so weird about money? And it, it's because my mindset wasn't like caught up with where I wanted to take my business. I don't even know if this makes sense to you, but I want to ask you about mindset and how important that is to this whole process. Well, let me, and, and, and I, I am, was really bad with this and it took me a little while and it took me another friend, uh, a woman by the name of Regina that gave me an example that I absolutely love. The first thing is you have to value yourself. And when you do stuff, especially if you're good at it, you think it's easy. And I was really guilty of this mistake. I thought the things I did, they came to me naturally. They were very easy for me. So they couldn't have much value, right? I mean, if they're easy, there's no value in it. But that's because they're easy for me. For other people, I learned they're very hard and they're worth money. So you want to make sure that you value yourself appropriately and that you know you're worth it. And that starts by realizing you as a person are worth it. And so where this comes from, and what I was talking about Regina was, she did uh, human resources consulting for lawyers. And she was talking to a lawyer one day, and the lawyer said, oh, you're way too expensive. 
I need you to drop your prices by at least 20%. And Regina looked over at the lawyer and said, okay, would you drop your tw price 20% for your clients? He said, well, no, I'm a lawyer. I'm worth it. <laughs> and said, so am I. And uh -huh. I just, that's what you got to remember is you bring value to that table. It's good value. You're worth what they're willing to pay to you. You should never feel bad about it. And it does because, and I am so guilty of not wanting to take money, not wanting to charge people. And my wife would get on me all the time because she actually is the primary owner of the company. And I'd leave money on the table and I'd walk away and I'd be like, oh, I can't charge for that. I can't charge for that. It's worth it. And people are glad to pay when they get good value. They are willing to pay. And I've had people say, no, you have to take this. You need to charge me for this. And that's when I realized I am valuable. And you want to realize you are valuable and all the listeners because that's why we're here. If you're not valuable, nobody's going to hire you and let them decide that. But don't ever underestimate yourself and don't just cheap yourself to get the sale because that is the worst way to go. I, I We used to do that and I stopped altogether. We have our prices. We know we're good. We bring it that way. Yeah. And if you go too cheap, then the the perceived value is lessened too and people feel like they can take advantage and Yep. And uh, at least that's what I found. And I've also found that at least in my industry, when I price things too cheaply, I always regret it. And those jobs are usually more work for a lot less money. And it's it just turns into something unpleasant. So it's never been a good idea to price things too low, at least in my experience. Well, it, it, it depends. And what I'll do is I'll use car companies as an example. You're never going to get a um, a Mazda purchaser to buy a Mercedes-Benz because when you buy Mazda, you're buying a lower and you know a less expensive car. Um, so it depends on where you want to be in the market. If you want to be the low-cost competitor, then price is going to be your determining point. For what you sell, you sell a high-quality product. So you don't want to be fighting on price because what you're bringing to the table has a lot more to do with helping their business be more exposed and adding value to it, not just being the lowest cost solution. And so it depends on where the customer is and where you are, but you always want to make sure that you are putting yourself in the right place. I never want to sell on price because if I'm selling on price, I've already felt like I lost. Yeah, and that's a good point. I, I don't want to sell on price either. It, it's a downward spiral that's very difficult to um, get out of. You know, it's it, when people are making decisions on pennies on the dollar, it's it's just it's not a place I want to be either. Um, but yeah, thanks for the perspective of the car. That was a good one. Um, we don't have too much time left. A few more minutes, and I want to shift a little bit to what we were talking about before this um, recording was started, and that was we were talking about, uh, in more general terms, a little bit away from sales, but more about success and how um, there is some perception, maybe it's fueled by social media somewhat, of this quick success and everybody having these, um, you know, success in 30 days when I just started my business, or I think that was the example we were talking about, yep. whereas both of us have found that it's more of this, this long-term goal, this long-term vision, this long-term um, 
rewards are not coming so quickly all the time. It happens, you know, but it's, it's most of the time it's more of a longer view of things. So let's just talk about that for a little bit. What's your thinking about um, quick versus uh, in it for the long haul? And, and yes, that's, and it's not just in it for the long haul, it's surviving those disasters that almost all of us have hit. Um, what we are talking about, and I'm going to give a little shout out to Entrepreneurial U. I saw the author of Entrepreneurial U present a few days ago, and she was talking about these different things. One of the things, though, I noticed was the people she was putting up there seemed to have very quick success. One person gave out 10 letters, and they got a job as in a, with a chef within those 10 letters. I started to think, and I talked to other people at the event, and they all felt the same way. They all felt like this was unrealistic. And they all wanted to have that feeling of what bad things happen and how did you get through them? Because there are times, and I've went through these times, where I was like, I just want to give up. I don't want to do this anymore. And it really helps to know that other people were at that point, And other people had also reached that level of frustration and had bad things happen. We all went through 2008. It almost destroyed my company. It caused us to have a long time to get through. And I think having that camaraderie, seeing how other people overcame the hard things as opposed to just, oh, look, in 30 days, I found all these clients. I was successful. And this, I suddenly was successful. I think there are some people that get to be that successful that way. But most of us have had to struggle through something, and there's a personal hardship or professional hardship that we had to overcome. And I actually am going to try and see, put my hand into the uh, podcast world and start to talk to some of these people and help them to see, because I think it helps all of us. It helps you to know that other people have struggled to get through it, that you're not the only one. I think it's very therapeutic, and I want to help people to do that more because I like the idea of people being entrepreneurs and I know the challenges you face to do it. And it's not easy for most of us. And it helps to know you're not alone. 10,000 small businesses is a great example. I was in a room with 37 other entrepreneurs and we all came to the same realization. We didn't know what we were doing. We felt alone and we felt isolated. It let us get together and connect and become part of a bigger group but to talk about the problems we had. We can't hire people. We can't find the right marketing. We can't trust people we need. It was not me alone feeling that way. It was a group. It was suddenly now I have other people that understand my pain and tell me their stories. And that was very empowering for me. I don't know how if your experience with that was the same. Oh, exactly the same. Yeah, and so liberating to be able to talk like that. And, and of course, you have to choose you know, who you can be so open with, you have to, you know, trust people somewhat. But the truth is that entrepreneurs do all go through the same things. And I know in my business, um, you know, there have been plenty of times when um, it wasn't a walk in the park, you know, it was really hard and we were struggling with different things. Um, and sometimes um, cash flow struggles forced me to, um, you know, reach out to other, other entrepreneurs that I had done business with. And, you know, I've had to say uncomfortable things like I'm paying you, but it's going to be a little late. And, um, you know, that's not a pleasant conversation to have. But one thing I learned from having to go through that is pretty much across the board, all of them understood because they've all been there. And it's, um, 
you know, it's not something I'm advocating or saying, you know, I'm not particularly proud of it or whatever, but we all go through it. And, um, and when you start to realize that there is this network, once you're able to um, open up to the uh, possibility that there could be a tribe out there for you, it is empowering. And I did want to say, actually, you should be very proud of that. And I say that because you reached out to those entrepreneurs, you told them, I mean, the bad thing would have happened if you called them or not. So the truth is by reaching out to them and letting them know, and I've had companies and one of the roles that my wife and I have agreed on is if somebody earnestly comes to us and says they're having problems, we will do everything in our power to help them if they owe us money. Mm-hmm. Because as long as you talk to me, I want to help you. So the fact that you were willing to reach out, you should be so proud because too many places don't, they get embarrassed, they get scared. And so I don't get my payments and I don't get my payments. My first assumption is you're just trying to screw me. Mm-hmm. I think most entrepreneurs, like you said, understand bad things and hard times. And as long as you're talking to them, they're going to be very understanding. I've given up money that I would have taken because of certain things, but you got to be communicating. You got to be willing to talk to us. And then we're very willing. And I bet you every single one of the people you called felt the exact same way. Yeah, definitely the vast majority. And, and it's, um, it, it, and, you know, even going through stuff like that, the, um, the bumps in the road or the failures or the, you know, whatever you call it, all of that ends up giving you so much knowledge. It adds to this grit component, this determination to get through it and make it happen. And it, 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 I, I, I don't even want to say I regret any of it. Like I, of course, nobody wants to go through the tough times, but you learn so much from doing that, that I almost feel a weird kind of gratitude for all of that too, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't think, and, and I've had some tough experiences, especially when I was younger. I would not want to give those up now because they let me get to the person I am. Now, at the time, would I have wanted to go through that? No, it could be some really horrific experiences, but you are the person you are because of the things that have happened and you can either embrace them or you can rage against them. And the problem with raging against them is you spend so much of your time angry and frustrated that you don't get to enjoy where you are today. And I I, I love this one story. I used to travel a lot in my previous life and when I would go, my wife would for two days before I left, would be all sad and concerned. And one day I said, why are you sad? She said, because in two days you're going to be gone. I said, but today I'm here. Why don't we enjoy what we have now and not worry about the fact that I'll be gone for a week in two days? And we started to change our attitude and realize the good times you have, enjoy them. The bad times, experience them but don't let them define you. And I've worked really hard and I am not perfect anywhere near perfect, but I've worked hard to remember that bad things will happen and you got to get through them and don't let them drag you back down. Don't let it be the thing that stops you from being able to achieve the next step. Yeah, totally. And now when so-called bad things happen to me, I'm much quicker to, to just, you know, A, know that it's temporary and I will get through it. But also to 
be looking for the lesson. You know, what is what is that here that, um, you know, we can be learning from going through this and how can we use that? How can we turn it around and turn it into a blessing or turn it into something that we can, um, you know, benefit from in some way or learn from or do something differently? Or, you know, it's, it's um, I, I find myself much less, uh, likely to get stuck there these days. Yeah. And I want to tell you a story about my son, which helped me to get better in life. My son has a seizure disorder and he loved to play football. And he played football through junior high and then he went into high school and his doctor told him he could not play football anymore. Everything they learned about concussion syndrome and all that, he just said no. So I was very afraid because he had so much of his life bundled into doing football that I thought it was going to devastate him. I know it would have devastated me. He came home. He said, well, I can't be a football player, so I'm going to go and join the trainer group so I can be part of football even if I can't do it. And then when they let me play, I will play. Well, I knew he was never going to get to play, but he's been a trainer for three years. He loves it. He's still engaged with it. And he just walked through what I considered a terrible disaster like it was almost nothing. And I've taken that and made that a personal part of my life because I remind he lost something that was completely important to his life. And he just adjusted and said, I will do what I can to still be part of what I love. And I now try to actually emulate my son so that I can do that better. Oh, that's a great story. Thank you, Ken. And unfortunately, we're out of time. I I feel like we could continue this conversation uh, and we may have to do that in a future episode. But um, I wanted to thank you for being with us today and chatting with us. And um, what's the best way for people to reach you? Um, well, we are going to be bringing out a uh, website soon, emotionalcell.com, that I'm going to try and help people to learn how to do emotional selling. And they can reach me at my email, which is kfanger at ontechpartners.com. I would love to hear from people. I love to talk. I love to share. And I'm excited to kind of grow this concept. So that would be great. Okay, fabulous. I'll also um, put both of those links on my website. So that is um, readysetgrit.com. You can hear this whole interview and, and get links, find out more about Ken, get links to his email and his website there. And uh, thank you, Ken, for being here. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And I hope to see all of you next Friday when we release another episode of Ready, Set, Grit and interview a new guest about um, turning your daydream into a phenomenal success. Thanks for tuning in to Ready, Set, Grit, your life on purpose with Ellen Barton. Look us up online at readysetgrit.com where you'll find daily inspiration, links to our social media, and where you can access our ebooks and online classes. Ready, Set, Grit. Inspired actions, real results.